you are listening to the Better Than I Found It podcast. This is Mikel, the assistant men's golf coach at Baylor, joined by Coach McGraw this morning. How are you, Coach? Doing great, Mikel. Thanks for uh, doing the introduction this morning. You did yeah. a great job. You're yeah, awesome. We, we try to find new ways of introducing the podcast. It's, uh, it's a hard gig, but uh, today we got a unique guest. It's Lee Jansen. He's a two-time U.S. Open winner. You know him uh, somewhat, that, that you've gotten to know him over the years. And uh, he played Division Two golf, went from being a Division Two player to being a very successful professional player and won two major championships. So we'll kind of dig down into that a little bit later. I'll let you introduce the guest a little bit uh, more in depth. But um, we wanted to talk a little bit about recruiting today. And, and that's why he's, he's a good guest today as well. Uh, recruiting has resumed. So we are out on the road. You and I have both been watching some golf for the first time in about 15 months, along with a lot of other college golf coaches. We have also been able to contact 2023 recruits and talk to them. And we are getting a lot of uh, requests, aren't we, coach, from recruits in the 21 class, 22 class, 23 class. Yeah, and you know that, thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's great to be back out on the road. It's great to be able to communicate with, with uh you know, a new class of players that, that we haven't been able to communicate with in a long, long time. And the t- class of 21 and the class of 22 have really been adversely affected relative to coaches being able to evaluate them, relative to uh, coaches seeing them literally in person. They haven't been able to do that. And uh, the couple other things that are affecting rosters. The rosters in college golf are filling up. One of them is because uh, the NCAA gave a COVID fifth year to all four classes in the spring of 2020. They could use it if they wanted to. And so, a, a, you know, a certain percentage of those kids have decided to come back. So rosters have gotten bigger. And the transfer portal is also a place where coaches are getting additional players. So the class of 21 and the class of 22 have been really kind of shortchanged, if you will. And you don't want to make excuses and that's no way to live life. But it has pre- prevented them from having as many opportunities as they would have had. Yeah, and we've absolutely gotten rung down, but that's not just a Baylor thing. Every college coach has been rung down. But the cool thing, Coach, is that there are a lot of different ways of experiencing college golf. And Lee Jens is going to speak to that in a little bit. But we have the Power 5 level that we're at at Baylor uh, with the big, big schools with big athletics programs. You have the mid-major level at Division One, which I have coached at. Uh, you have Division Two, Division Three, NAIA, Junior College. There's so many cool opportunities out there that could be a great fit to, to some of these kids that are struggling to find a place. Absolutely. And I think a lot of parents and kids overlook that because, I mean, the, the truth is we all dream big. I mean, we want to dream big. And so sure. I'm a little kid growing up in, you know, Kalamazoo, Michigan, and I'm I'm not known by very many coaches, but I had this dream I want to play at a Power Five conference school one day, and I, you know, I dream about that, I practice for that, I compete for that, and then a pandemic hits, and now all of a sudden, oh wait, these coaches aren't getting to see me, they don't get to know that I'm this, or they don't get to know that I'm that, you know, um, I love the fact that kids dream big, but not every kid's going to end up at a Power 5 conference school. And not every kid that plays the tour one day comes from a Power 5 conference school. And that's exactly. a, a, a kind of a, a, um, 
a, a fact that's not very well known by people. They think that all professional golfers have come from a major school. It's not the case at all. I, I want to tell you a story, Miguel, uh, sure. about my junior golf career. I was a uh, a nice little player in Oklahoma, nothing special, obviously, but I knew Mike Holder, the golf coach at Oklahoma State. I caddied for him when he came and played my dad's pro-am in Ponca City, Oklahoma, uh, but I never really got to play in front of him, and I had applied for the Junior Orange Bowl, which in those days was like the biggest tournament you could play in anywhere in the winter in Miami, Florida, and I got turned down my sophomore year and my junior year, and finally my senior year, I get a letter back from the the guy that was running the tournament and it said you've been accepted to the junior orange bowl i thought oh this is my chance and i'm sure coach holder will be there recruiting i went down there with nine holes to play i was in third place and i (laughs) I ended up shooting i think about 40 or 41 on the back nine and finished 10th but it was still a top 10 finish in a national tournament a big junior tournament and mike holder had seen me play he was there recruiting willie wood he was not recruiting me (laughs) i was playing with willie wood uh and so it took me about a month, and I got up the courage to call Mike sometime in January of 1978, my senior year in high school. And I I asked Mike, uh, I said, Coach Holder, it's Mike McGraw. Hey, Mike, what can I do for you? Well, uh, you know, I saw you at the Junior Orange Bowl last month. He said, yeah, you played really well. Good job. Thanks, Coach. Um, well, Mike, what can I do for you today? Well, Coach, I'm I'm calling to see if I could be a walk-on, you know, at Oklahoma State next year. And as it happens, my best friend, Jeff McMillan from Stillwater, was going to sign a letter of intent in April with Mike Holder at Oklahoma State. And so I wanted to be on Jeff's team for sure, and I wanted to play at OSU. I'd always dreamed of playing at OSU, just like kids all around this country today are dreaming about playing at Power Five Conference schools. And Mike literally said, and he's a very direct man, he said, Mike, well, I've got about 16 or 17 players in this team better than you are right now. Why would I recruit you? He said, you need to go someplace where you can play. Mm. And as much as that hurt to hear, well, it was the right advice. And I'm I'm glad he said that. I'm glad he did that to this day because I went to Odessa Junior College and played for Barry Rodenhaver for a year and then transferred to Central Oklahoma and had a great experience there. Central Oklahoma at the time was an NAIA school. Yeah. But the truth is, he was right. I would not have played, and I'll never forget telling him I was battling. I was fighting for this spot, and I said, Coach, I'll be the hardest-working guy you have. Nobody will outwork me. I'll have the best attitude. I will be the best example you could ever have. He said, well, that's really nice, Mike. And Monday through Thursday, you can be that great example. But on Friday, when I take that team on the road, on a plane to a tournament, you're still going to be in Stillwater. You'll never play. Mm-hmm. And it hurt to hear, but it, the truth was I needed to go someplace else where I could play and develop my game. Yeah. And thankfully, Mike gave me that advice in 1978. And so you had your eyes set on an opportunity that didn't come to fruition for whatever reason. Probably you weren't quite good enough. But it turned out to be a really good experience for you, junior college and NAIA. And the truth is it opened the door to be Mike's assistant coach sure. so many years later, 25 years later. Sure. So I think... I think everything happens for a reason. I really do. I believe that. You hear that statement all the time. But yeah. but I think Mike gave me the good advice that I think I'm having to give to a lot of kids this today. Even. Yeah. So I think one of the main things we'd like for the listeners to get out of this episode with Lee Jansen is there's a lot of roads to that lead to Rome. So uh, you'll hear from Lee that, that uh, he was a Division II player. You'll hear his story how he was recruited. 
Um, and it's pretty inspiring that you don't have to go to that top, top level. There's nothing wrong with ambition and, and you love kids that have high ambitions for themselves, but there are a lot of ways to get better. Well, and, and Lee is going to show us today, there are paths that don't look normal. They don't look normal that you get to a place and he became, all he knew was he was a great player. All he knew was I can play golf. And he ended up playing basically in his hometown. Uh, but he didn't see the difference between Division One and Two. All he saw was an opportunity, yeah. and he took advantage of it. And it's very inspiring to me. And so I, I'm thankful Lee decided to come on today. And I think he does a great job of saying why playing a Division Two or NAI or a smaller level would actually work. So without any further ado, let's get to that interview with Lee. Okay, my guest today on Better Than I Found It is Lee Jansen, two-time U.S. Open champion and just a really great guy that I've known for quite a few years. And Lee, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. You, um, you, you, mean, you know what we're going to talk about eventually is, is your experience at a Division II school, uh, which I know was great. And I, I want to hear all about that. I want to hear the fun times. I want to hear about what you learned. I want to hear about all the things you did to get better at that school, but I also want to hear uh, about something that most of the golfing public knows you for, and that is being a two-time U.S. Open champion. I mean, that's pretty amazing what you accomplished back in the 1990s. In 1993, you won at Baltus Royal in 1998 at Olympic. Can you talk a little bit about those experiences? Because I remember watching them, but uh, you, you lived them. Right. Well, the U.S. Open was a big deal. Uh, still is a big deal. Um, you know, most of the golf tournaments were on TV, but there were not all of them were on TV in the eighties and they were usually only televised on the weekend. Right. And, you know, then, uh, some of the early round coverage was coming on. That was usually only a couple hours. So it definitely wasn't the TV coverage that you have today. So when the U S open was on people watched because you got to watch a lot more golf. Um, and I can remember being at a junior tournament in 1980 and all the heads were turned to the TV. No one even cared about who was winning the trophies because Jack Nicholas was winning the U.S. Open. Yeah, that to me is one of the top five that I've ever watched because we wondered if he would ever do it again. And he did it at Baltus for all the place that you you grew to love later in later years as well. Yeah. And, yeah. Who knew that, that at that time I'm watching, you know, and I remember that moment specifically. Um, and I think that was the first U.S. Open I watched. So. Who knew that it'd be Baltus Raw for me? But so, and the years went by. I uh, I qualified for the U.S. Open in 1985 while I was still in college. I was the youngest guy in the field. Um, it was the first time I even got past the local, so it was kind of a surprise that I got that far. That was uh, the year T.C. Chen uh, two chip, right, at Oakland Hills. Had a double eagle on the second hole and a two chip on the fifth hole later in the tournament. Yeah, that was crazy, and and. Another two-time U.S. Open champion won that year, Andy North. Yeah, Andy North. Yeah, so that was your first year Open, huh? Yeah, that was, and that was a, um, I guess you could call it a great experience because I, I was, I got to experience a lot of adversity um, and learn from, you know, growing up in Florida, I learned how to play golf in Florida, so I did not play much golf on greens like that. Um, extremely undulating. I don't remember how many three putts I had, but I, 
I think I surprisingly hit a lot of fairways and hit a lot of greens, but I really had a hard time because I was in the wrong spot and three putted a lot and maybe beat one or two players. And that was it. When did you get back to the open after that? And then 1991, I qualified at Hazeltine um, and then qualified again for Pebble Beach. And every time I just put like everything I had mentally, emotionally into the tournaments, like, OK, this is this is my chance to show, become, you know, get noticed, get on TV. Because every U.S. Open, there's always a guy that comes up the leaderboard no one's ever heard of and it becomes a story. And um, so I wanted to be that guy and I would hit it in the rough on the first hole and make bogey and struggle from there on and never made a cut um in those first three that i tried played in um and then from the 92 u.s open flew on a red-eye flight to new york because westchester was the next week and all i did was write in a journal all of the things that i needed to do if i ever wanted to win the u.s open you're kidding me no so a year later i had 13 top tens it was probably my best stretch of golf um, I won another tournament. I contended quite often. Uh, getting closer to Baltusrol, I shot a 61 at Colonial. Hmm. But there were signs of playing good golf. Uh, I played in the last group at Westchester the week before and shot 72 on Sunday and missed the playoff by a shot. The two guys in the playoff shot 66. So all I had to do was shoot under par. I would have won that tournament. Um, so I went, I went in playing well, but with just enough of a chip on my shoulder because I knew I'd let one get away. Um, but I, I really took the pressure off myself at Baltusrol by saying, you know, I, I keep pushing so hard to play great in the U.S. Open. Why don't I just play it like it's just another tournament? So for the most part, that's how I, I prepared for the week. I played practice rounds. I didn't go hit balls afterwards. Went to a baseball game and just sort of took the idea like it's just another tournament. I'm going to go out and play and see what happens. Well, it wasn't just another tournament, Lee. <laughs> no. And, and I hit the fairway on the first hole. I hit it on the green. I made birdie. And, and I just thought that's all I had to do was just relax and not try so hard. <laughs> There's some genius in there someplace. I think uh, all of us try too hard at some point. Absolutely. You have to try not to try. I love <laughs> it. Don't, don't yep. try hard not to try. I got. I love it. I love it a lot. That's good. Uh, you're, that was the first of two battles you had with Payne Stewart, though. I mean – and Payne literally owned the U.S. Open in the 1990s. He won twice, and he was close three other times. I mean, he he was dominant in the U.S. Open, and, and you took him down that year. Yes. Um, 1986 at Shinnecock, he had the lead, and I was pulling for him as hard as anybody was pulling for him to win. And uh, Ray Floyd chipped in. I don't know what hole he chipped in on, like 14, and he was playing with Payne. I, I think that if Payne had not been paired with Ray Floyd, he may have won that tournament. But Ray chipped in and the crowd went crazy and Ray gave that stare and it was like, oh boy, here comes Raymond. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I remember, yeah, P Payne was a regular contender in the U.S. Open. Um, and I got to play with Tom Watson on Saturday. He was my other hero growing up watching golf. Tom Watson and Payne Stewart. Yeah, so. Tom Watson, it had a nice renaissance there in the mid-90s where because he hadn't really won a major in a lot of years and hadn't won a, a tour event in a few years. Uh, he was playing good in the open there in the mid nineties. Yes. Um, he had a lot of chances to win tournaments in the nineties. He did. Uh, so anyway, you win that. So you're at only 27 when you won the open. Is that right? The first time? 93, I was uh, 28. 28. I mean, that's a, that's a nice young age to win a U.S. open. A lot of people think you have to have a lot of experience or have to have done it a million times. 
And that was only the first time you'd made a cut in a U.S. Open? That's right. Um, and I made a lot of birdies that week, but and I also made a lot of mistakes, but I never compounded the mistakes. When I had a hole that I bogeyed, I usually bounced back pretty quickly. Um, the first seven holes on the golf course were extremely tough, and I think I was the only one that played the first seven holes under par, so I got up to a good start every day too. So there were some good things that I did that week. So um, tell me this, because I've talked to Bob Tway and I've talked to a few other people that I've known that have won a major. So you go from being just a really good tour player, up-and-coming player, that type of thing. Now all of a sudden, when they announce you on almost every tee box, when they announce you at tournaments anywhere, you're now the U.S. Open champion. That had to feel different. Was it a, a scary feeling? I mean, how was that for you? How'd you handle it? I guess it was an adjustment. Um, you know, if you're a goal setter um, and then you reach a goal, what do you do? Um, you got to find a way to set new goals and keep pushing. So it was definitely an adjustment. Um, and there were other factors too, but yes, um, I played a lot of golf up through that U S open. My wife was expecting, so I knew I was going to take time off later in the year, but then I cemented a spot on the Ryder cup team with that win. Um, so I needed to play just enough to, so I could be ready for the Ryder cup too. And was it Tom Watson, your captain that year? Yes. That must've been a thrill. Oh yeah. Um, so I was the youngest player on the team at 28. And then four years later, when I played in the Ryder cup, I was maybe one of the older players. We had a very young team the next, that next time I played, but a lot of veteran presence on that Belfry team. Um, and I just sat back and watched and soaked it in and listened. Um, so it was a great week. We won. It was the last time we won on foreign soil. Um, and, you know, after the tournament is over on Sunday and you have all the ceremonies, both teams get together and have dinner together. And then the teams will get together by themselves, you know, so the night goes on pretty long and everybody's tired. We're going to go fly home the next day. And I don't know, I got up. I don't know what time it was when I got up, but I could hear the TV blaring down in the player room. So I went down there to see who was in there and it was Tom Watson. He's got, I think he had a cigar. I don't know. That's how I remember it. And he's watching the replay of the Ryder Cup. So I sat down with him. We talked for a little while. Um, and he, he actually came, brought up um, how watching Gil Morgan in 1992 at Pebble Beach, um, he made a bad uh, choice on number eight, made double on Saturday, and he just wasn't the same after that. And I told Tom how I learned from that. He was like, how did you learn from his mistake? I go, I put myself in his shoes and tried to just imagine what I should do in that same situation. So. In 93, when I did make those mistakes uh, that you shouldn't make in a U.S. Open, like going for a back pin and hitting it over the green, um, I, I got over it really quickly and went to the next hole. That's funny you should mention Gil Morgan. Um, he was the first player in the history of the U.S. Open to get to 10 under par at any point. Yep. And that same tournament, the only time a guy has birdied the first six holes of U.S. Open was Andy Dillard that year. He birdied the first six holes, and he finished about 18th, and that's about what Gil finished. But – um, so you actually studied that video and it g gave you a little, a little, uh, knowledge. Yeah. When I watch, I just try and, you know, what, what mindsets he going through, especially when you see a guy's demeanor change and it affects his game. Um, I want to learn, you know, I we're always making mistakes. That's how we learn. You know, the first time we hit a golf ball, we don't hit it perfect. Um, oh, that's I, for sure. that was terrible. It took me a long time to figure out how to hit the golf ball. <laughs> well, tell me this. So you win a U.S. Open, you play in a Ryder Cup for your one of your childhood heroes as your captain. I mean, this is kind of storybook. And as you said, you had to continually change 
goals. But at that point, you really had to change something because now I've, I've gotten to the pinnacle. How do I stay here? What do I do? I mean, what were the next four or five years like before you won another open? Right. So uh, 94 was a challenge. Um, I had a club change that didn't go well at the beginning of the year. Um, company really wanted me to play their cavity back iron and I was a blade guy and uh, my eye was going sideways. So we met and I talked to him to let me play my blades again. Um, my flu- I was in Japan playing a tournament where I finished in the top 10. I came back to the States and finished top 10 a couple weeks in a row and went to Westchester and shot a tournament record and won the tournament. So it seemed like I turned everything around and I was all set to be ready for the U.S. Open again. Um, but I guess just it, I just didn't quite have it the first day at Oakmont and um, and probably pressed a little bit too much like I did before. And I missed the cut by a shot there at Oakmont. It was tough. Um, and I just won a tournament the week before at Westchester. So but, yeah, that, you know, probably there's always, shows you what expectations do. Yeah, there's always these ups and downs, you know, too high expectations can derail you and too low expectations too. So, you know, figuring all of that out. Um, so how did you play in, in, in 95, 96, 97, those other three opens before you won at Olympic? Right. So I won three tournaments in 95, mm-hmm. but I didn't contend that often. I only had four top tens. So other years where I had between seven and 10 top tens every year. And then this year, I, that particular year I didn't, but when I got close, I always did well at the end. Uh, which was fun, but um, having a chance to win the money list that year was a a new pressure that I also learned from because I got so locked in on thinking I had to play great every week instead of doing what I did before. And that was just playing the next shot. There's some, there's some wisdom in there, but it's funny how we have to keep on relearning lessons and keep on, you know, and the college golfers, and by the way, what you're speaking into is a lot about what college golfers go through all the time, you know, uh, putting some silly expectation on themselves and forgetting how did I get to this good spot to begin with? Yeah. So, you know, I analyzed what I did in 95 and thought, how can I get better for 96? And I wanted to be more consistent. Um, and I just started looking into my schedule and where I would play well in, in runs of tournaments. If I played five in a row, I usually played my best in the fourth or fifth week. So, um, I, I was figuring out then that going and hitting balls for two weeks didn't necessarily help me play playing golf for two weeks, maybe at a different course every day or having a game every day was better for me than, than just practicing. I know some guys are great. Phil Mickelson's great. He can go to the, he'd take two weeks off, go to the range for six hours and he's got his game. I can't do that. So I was learning those things. So I, I was much more consistent in 96 and seven, but I didn't win a tournament, but I, I just played much more consistent, which is what I was trying to do. Um, and I played well enough without winning to make the Ryder Cup team again in 97. Um, I played pretty good in some majors, but nothing good enough to win. Uh, I think I had a top 10 at Oakland Hills, Valhalla. And in 97 at Wingfoot, I finished fourth playing with Tom Kite, who was the captain, which didn't hurt. Getting paired with him on Sunday of the PGA. Um, and then birdie in the last hole to beat him by a shot. You know, he wasn't going to pick me because I just beat him and took money out of his pocket, but then he did. That's good. And then that leads up to Olympic. Uh, I remember that championship for uh, some pretty, uh, pretty severe greens. I mean, that was a, that was an incredible event that year. Yeah. Um, 
so this year's U.S. Women's Open, if you watched, um, a lot of trees have been removed. Um, so, that, you know, almost all the greens were always in the shade, which made, I thought, the greens very difficult to read when you had sun and shade. And, of course, it was almost better to have the marine layer over the course because uh, then everything was the same, easier to see. But when the sun and the clouds were coming in and out, it was, I thought the greens were very difficult, especially that seaside poana. Um, and then the trees were very difficult too. But that course is on the side of a hill. And the closer you are to the clubhouse, the more severe the greens are. Uh, I remember, anyway, I remember that championship. You won. Talk about what's the biggest highlight from that week. I mean, you, now you're doing rarefied air. You're becoming a two-time champion. Right. So leading into that, um, I decided not to play the week before because it was in New York. And flying from New York Sunday night, and if there's any weather delays and I have to go Monday, I didn't want to have a short week of preparation. I wanted to have a full week. So I skipped Westchester, one of my favorite tournaments. Um, but that whole week before, I played a different golf course every day in Florida. And I picked courses that had lots of dog legs so I could constantly work on working the ball around corners like Olympic. So when I got there, um, I felt pretty good about my game and the way I was hitting it. Um, I'd had a couple chances to win earlier in 98, which I blew, uh, the Players' Championship, and in Houston were two great opportunities. So I knew I was close, um, but I got there on the Sunday, and I think the uh, Bulls won the NBA championship on that Sunday. Michael Jordan won his sixth, I think, mm -hmm. NBA championship then. Something like that. Um, and then I played three practice rounds. I, I got lost going to the course one day. I mean, I knew what the course was. I took a wrong turn and went across the bridge the wrong direction because once I made the wrong turn, I, I was stuck. Um, so I was late to get into the practice round. I was so mad at myself. But then I just kind of thought like, okay, if this is the most adversity I have to overcome the whole week, I'm going to be okay. Um, going the wrong way. And I think at one time, I, even my hubcap came off the car because I saw it go flying by. <laughs> I thought I was having a terrible day, but all I did was just go the wrong way for a half an hour. Um, but once I calmed down from that, I went and had a good productive practice round. And um, even though I played pretty well the first day, I shot three over par. And a reporter asked me well, if I was disappointed that I was no longer in the tournament. And I, I just thought it was an unusual question. I said, hey, I don't think that at all. I said, the course is very hard and no one's going to shoot under par every day. It's just not going to happen. So. And? No, no one did. No one did. I was going to say, I didn't think anybody did. And uh, you oh. ended up in a, in a battle. So, yeah, I had two over par scores. Um, at one time, Payne was 10 shots ahead of me during the second round. He, he had, his tee time was back an hour and a half ahead of me. He had 66, I had 73, and he buried the first three holes Friday. So he was 10 shots ahead of me at that time. Wow. That, that's, that's hard to believe. Didn't end up that way, did it? No. So, you know, we could go detail for detail, but you end up winning your second U.S. Open. Now that's a that's a different deal. That's pretty amazing. And um, honestly, you played a lot more professional golf after that. A lot of really good professional golf too. And you're still playing today. Um, you know, I talked before we started this interview. I asked you, do you still have the same fire for playing golf? Talk about that because. That part amazes me when somebody, I think you're 57? 56. 56. I'm not quite 57. Okay, 56. I don't want to uh, make you older than you are, but 
but uh, that's great to have the fire in your belly still for that. Well, yeah, I guess the fire is to want to shoot good scores, to uh, to execute and do it how you think you can do it. Um, so, yes, yeah, sir. You know, and I, I certainly think I can win still. Every year you get older on the Champions Tour, there's 50-year-olds coming out that are going to have slight advantage because they are younger. It's the, uh, it's the only tour, I believe, that the youngest guys are the, uh, the best players, where the rookies are really the best players. Um, but I don't have to look too far at um, Bernhard Langer and Jay Haas, both older than me and still playing very well and competing. So I know it can be done. But there's a lot of work to be done in the trailer. I spend probably eight to ten hours every week on my body, which I never did when I was younger. Um, you know, some of that's just wear and tear of golf swing, and some of it's I've been in two car accidents too. So those those are not helpful. Well, it's it's inspiring to me. I mean, I'm a little older than you are, but to have somebody in my age category that still loves playing the game that much and still loves trying to shoot low scores and you're still you still have that competitive fire, which is which is awesome. So keep that up. But, yeah. My but, day will sometime. Not you know, my day is gonna end sometime and I can accept that. Oh yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know if I'll accept it easily. I hope I do, because I keep telling myself it's you know, I can't play forever. It could be five years, it could be ten years, it could be one year. I don't know when it's gonna be, but as long as I can physically take care of myself and I can still go work at it. I'm going to keep doing it. Good for you. I would keep on doing that. So we, we've basically in 20 minutes talked about your, your career as a professional, but I also want to back up and talk about what preceded that. And um, so Mikel and I were just in a conversation about um, COVID-19, what it did to recruiting because coaches were off the road for 15 months what it did for the 21s and 22 recruiting classes that didn't get recruited very much and the transfer portal where coaches are now finding other players to, to get on their squad. And the NCAA gave, because of COVID, gave all four classes an additional year of eligibility if you wanted to use it. So these rosters have gotten full. And a lot of kids who had aspirations of playing at top D1 schools or even mid-major D1 schools, uh, those opportunities are shrinking. There's not as many. So what I really want you to be able to tell parents and kids today, your story of playing at Florida Southern, a division two school, why that had value, why it helped prepare you to be a professional golfer and why it's okay to do that. So I'm going to let you take it over from there. I just want to give the backdrop as to uh, one of the main reasons I wanted you to come and speak about that. That's an amazing story. You came from a division two school and became a two-time U S open champion. Right. Well, in college or well in high school, you know, playing the junior circuit the American junior golf association, you know, we, we knew who the junior all Americans were and they all played at Oklahoma state. <laughs> it's, you know, most of them seem like, so I was intimidated when Mike Holder showed up. Uh, I was just like hoping he'd say hi to me. <laughs> no, I, that was one of my junior year in high school. Uh, but I knew I wasn't going to get recruited by uh, a school like that. So there, there was more than one reason how I ended up in Florida Southern. My junior year in high school, I was in a car accident where um, artery was severed in my right arm. So I'm lucky to have my arm, much less be alive. Um, and that was quite a recovery. So um, 
I almost missed my junior year of high school uh, for golf team. We played in the spring, but by the end of the spring, I at least started playing golf somewhat like I did before the car accident. And uh, I somewhat returned to normal by my senior year, but a lot of recruiting opportunities are already passed. So um, in a different way, yours was a physical accident, a car accident. This has been COVID for these young kids. Either right. way, opportunities uh, for recruiting kind of passed by. Right. But I wanted to play college golf and I was expecting to play college golf. Um, I didn't, I really didn't have my sights set on the university of Florida. I thought a big school wasn't for me. Um, I had actually two weeks before I started at Florida Southern, I was planning on going to Brevard junior college and trying to walk on at the golf team. The coach told me I, he, I was welcome to come try out, but he pretty much had his team set. I thought, well, the worst case scenario, I can go to a junior college and in two years, if I develop there, there could be a school that's the perfect fit for me by then. Um, and then I won a junior tournament and Charlie Matlock, the coach of Florida Southern thought I'd already signed somewhere else. And he just heard that I did not have anywhere to go and asked if I wanted to come to Florida Southern in my hometown. Um, they were two time defending champs, um, in division two played primarily a division one schedule. Um, other than the end of the year, when we played our conference and our regional and our nationals, we played a division one schedule. Yeah. I was actually, I did some research and looked at, the results of your last two years. I mean, you guys played against, I mean, the Florida Invitational, Florida State's tournament uh, twice, uh, Louisiana State's tournament. I mean, you were playing the main Division One teams in that part of the country. You were playing their, their schedule. Yes. Um, we won at South Florida, I think, in 1984. Uh, Rocco was on that team. Um, so, yeah, we, every once in a while we'd beat all those guys. Um, we were probably – it was good to play against teams that were better than us because it made us play better. And then when we played against division two, we felt like we were better than them and we weren't intimidated by them at all. Um, but you know, the kids don't have that opportunity today if they play D two to play a D one schedule you right. know, with you're graded on your competition. But you know, the other advantage of going to Florida Southern being in Florida opportunity to go to the golf course every day, warm climate, and also opportunity to play, on a golf team, you know, you, if you go to an Oklahoma state, you're competing with possibly five first team junior all Americans. So, um, a little adversity is okay. And, you know, a competition is also okay, but you know, whatever school you're at, the competition is going to be pretty good. Did you to think, did you think of yourself, well, I'm going to a D2 school. This isn't as good of a, of a situation or, or did you just look at it as an opportunity? Um, well, if you know, if Florida Southern was unique because of, you know, we hosted our own tournament also where we had a lot of good schools come in. And so that was a course I grew up at. So I saw all these teams coming to Imperial Lakes every year in Lakeland. Um, and so I knew a lot of those guys and I never really, in my mind, I never looked at it as different from D2 to D1 as far as the golf goes. Um, it says D2, but golf balls the same clubs are the same golf courses are the same. You still got to go shoot a score. Um, I like that. As my college career developed, um, the guys I knew went on and played tour school, and some of them got on tour, um, and Rocco was one of them, and that was helpful. That opened my eyes to, like, okay, just because I did, I went to a Division two school doesn't really mean that I don't have the same experience or the same opportunity. 
if these guys that I know that I play college golf with and could beat are making it on the tour, then I can do it too. Well, Marco Dawson also played on your team there as well, didn't he? That's right. Yes. Yeah, he ended up being a, a fine tour player as well. So he's still playing. Yeah, he's still playing, isn't he? He is to this day. You know, it it's interesting. You should you talk. You said something I've never heard anybody say, and that was I didn't see it as different. Division one, division two. I was. Just, it's just golf, and we're just playing. And I can I can beat these guys. And I think a lot of kids think of it as not as good a situation. But if it if it's all you've got and it's a place to compete. I mean, to me, it's about playing. You can't sit on a bench at a power five school as a, you know, mid-range player and get better. you got to compete. Yeah, you got to have the opportunity to play tournament rounds. Um, exactly. Even after college, you can't just go Monday qualify. You need to go find tournaments to play. So wherever that may be, if you got to go play state opens for a year, um, wherever it is you're playing, if you're, if you're a rookie on tour right out of college, that's great. But you should be trying to get better. If you're playing the Corn Ferry Tour, you should be trying to get better. If you are on neither, wherever it is you're playing, Canadian Tour or wherever, you're trying to get better. You're trying to get your game to where these guys on TV, the way they do it. You mentioned uh, people uh, on your team that you saw that went on and played and, and guys. But the current players you had on your team, you were trying to compete and beat them and go, go play in tournaments. To me, it's about those relationships are pretty strong whether you played at central Oklahoma, like I did, or Florida Southern, like you did, or Oklahoma state or wherever you're building relationships that last a lifetime as well. So you can do that at a D two school as well. Oh yeah. My college roommate was on the team. We're still good friends. Um, I see other guys that played when I was there quite a bit. Um, they're all over the country, but yeah. And, and guys I played against too. Okay. Now this is a question that a lot of people are going to, uh, will want to hear an answer to or you to at least describe it. So, yes, you were ha at a D2 school, but how did you become a PGA Tour player? And how did Rocco do it? How did Marco do it? How did Gil Morgan do it from an NAI school? How did Chad Campbell do it starting at a junior college? Abraham Answer started at junior college. Paul Azinger started at Brevard, just like you were talking about maybe going to. Uh, Robert Garricus, uh, Scott Stallings, they all started at small schools or finished at small schools and played the tour. How does one do that? Because I don't think there's a, a formula, but maybe you could tell your formula. Well, you know, boys don't mature as quickly as girls, right? So I think you have a better idea of girls that are going to college physically where they are as far as, you know, how much stronger they might get or whatever. I, I wasn't done growing. Um, I didn't really even grow till my senior year in high school um five one starting 11th grade oh wow graduated at six foot um but i probably weighed 140 pounds still so i need to gain some weight you know i was a little weak and needed to gain some strength so it took a couple years of maturing that way for me which probably was very helpful as my game also developed um you know and learning to go practice every day uh, still in high school, you know, I still enjoyed going and playing basketball or racquetball or, or doing whatever. So I didn't always go to the golf course every day. But in college, I knew that that was really where I needed to be more committed if I was going to get better. And, you know, I'd qualify for a tournament and then I wouldn't shoot good enough and I have to go requalify. And this went on my whole sophomore year until finally at the end of my sophomore year, I started shooting the lowest score in the tournament and I didn't have to qualify anymore. But, uh, you know, there's that that step you got to get over. OK, I know how to qualify. Now what, I got to learn how to do that in a tournament. 
And then yeah, I got to do it. You had the best scoring average on your team your junior and senior year, so you were obviously the best player on the team. What What did you learn from the first time you got there, you know, as a freshman, to your senior year when you were an All-American? And you did win the individual title, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so what what are some of the things you did? How did you work at the game? What did a what, what could you tell a young player who's who's trying to get there? How, how do I work at golf? How do I do it? Well, I know um, my freshman year was a real challenge. I was a terrible student. My grades were bad. And coach told me I wasn't going to play in the spring. So um, and then even in qualifying in the fall, I, I just I shot high scores. It was probably the high school. Now I'm with college kids. I'm with adults and I'm still a kid. And I'm trying to beat these guys who have already won two national championships and they're mature and I was immature. So I had a lot of learning to do. Um, and I had to face some adversity, but you know, what do you do with that? Do you just give up or do you just figure out I got to get better at all these areas and go to work? So um, I went to summer school when everybody else was playing tournaments that summer, I was at summer school for six weeks um, so my grade point average would be uh, good enough. So I would be eligible and I would actually have enough hours to be right back on track to graduate. So not what you want to do after your freshman year, but it's what I had to do. Um, and then, um, I went into the sophomore year thinking I got to reboot. Okay. I'm back on track. I've done everything I'm supposed to do academically. And I have a year under my belt so I can qualify, which I did. I did qualify for our first big tournament and coach didn't let me go because he was still punishing me, um, which is also another opportunity. How do you handle that? Do you have a grudge against coach forever because he did that or do you move on? So I played in a different tournament while the big boys went to Butler and played. Um, but after that, I played in every tournament. So I just made sure that he he was not going to do that to me anymore, that he was going to have to take me, that he'd have no choice. Made you more determined. Yeah. Um, tell me about some of your teammates. Uh, any great memories, funniest things that happened on trips, just anything that stands out as, you know, a college experience that was amazing for you? Um, well, we did play a lot in the South, the Southeast. But when we did get to travel and go to different spots, it was always fun. Um, so South Florida was going to host a tournament for the first time in a long time. So our, my sophomore year, Rocco senior year, Charlie Matlock, our coach said, okay, I want you to go over and play their course every Monday or whatever. So the first time we went over there, and this is a month before the tournament, we played four holes and it took two hours. So we quit and we went and got back in our cars and went back to campus and maybe went to one of the courses and just practiced. So every other time he told us to go play there, we went to Greenleaf and played. Um, so we win the tournament without doing any of the practice rounds he wanted us to do. <laughs> and we're driving back to campus, and he goes, aren't you glad I told you guys to go over there and play? Look what you guys did. And we all start laughing, and he's like, what? And I go, well, we never played. <laughs> he goes, what did you guys do? I go, we went to Greenleaf. He was just like shook his head. He couldn't believe it. That shows you we coaches they, think we know everything, right? He thought he had a great coaching move and it completely backfired. Tell me about winning the national championship. What um, did that mean to you at the time? Well, Florida Southern, they, uh, they, they almost won in 1979. They, in, uh, they had a six-shot penalty. Three guys got two-shot penalties 
because mm-hmm. a rain delay, they left the course and came back and they were late and they lost the turn by three shots. Mm. So there could have been uh, a reputation of almost, but never did it. But the next year they won by 35 shots and then they won again the next year. So there was a little bit of a tradition that was starting. Um, and then we finished second, I think, um, I, th- I don't even know where the team finished. Maybe we finished fourth. Yeah, maybe I finished fourth and the team finished second in 1984. I should remember this. I used to remember everything. But anyway, um, we were close. And everybody was coming back with Rocco. And we had a couple transfers. So, uh, you know, we were contenders again the next year. So, you know, Florida Southern, we, you know, we just knew that we, as long as we were playing, we always had a chance. Um, and going the last round – um, at Waterwood National, north of Houston, it was pretty close. Um, there was no guarantee that we were going to win. We knew, all knew we were going to have to play well on Sunday to win. And that was very exciting to, to get done at the end. You don't really know. You know, there's the technology today. I think the players have a better idea of what's going on. Um, but it was all stroke play then. And, you know, we didn't really know until the last couple of holes, really, what was going to happen. Um, and so you see the scores up on the board, really. And that's when you find out. Tell me about that 13th hole, the par three over the water. I don't think we played all the way back, but that's that hole is just inviting disaster. We played the NAI National Championship there my junior year, and it was a three-wood from that back tee. And right. all you have is water left, and the bailout is a terrible bailout. Now, there's no, nowhere to hit it but on the green. That's it. That's it. Anyway, I know I didn't handle it very well. I just wondered how you handle it. <laughs> um, I don't think that hole got me. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I think there were some other holes I made mistakes on, learned from them, and moved on. But I finished second that year by five shots behind Hugh Royer. Hugh Royer from Georgia? Um, he was at Mississippi okay. State okay. and then transferred to Columbus. Gotcha. Um, and then your last year you played at uh, – you played at yeah. Innisbrook, right? Yeah which uh, the division one like five years later played there too. So I shot 281 and then Phil Mickelson won with score 280 five years ago. So hmm. I didn't really need anybody to tell me that division two was as good as division one, but I, I, I did look to see what the scores were going to be like. And I, I was pretty happy that he shot a similar score when he won. Well, that I, that I shot. I think that's, that's amazing. And I think, you know, I've, I've got a saying that I use with players and I say good golf travels. So if, if you play good golf, it works everywhere you go. And it doesn't matter who you're playing against. Good golf, just it works everywhere you go. And I think that some people think because I'm at this school, I've got to play a certain kind of golf or I've got to do this. I play good golf. It, it works. Good golf wins U.S. Opens, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, execute. <laughs> you know, your, your plan might not be perfect, but if you execute it, it works out a lot better. Well, I, I, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I wanted to get across your experience at a Division II school was amazing. And you have great memories from it. You learned a lot from it. You prepared for a professional career from there. And I just want kids and parents and people out there to know that it's like, it doesn't have to be at a certain place. Not every All-American comes from a Power 5, top 5 ranked team in the country. Some really good players come from other areas. And so you guys at Florida Southern back in the 1980s proved that it's beautiful. Yes. Um, yeah. We, we played a nice schedule. We got to, we didn't travel very far. We usually drove to everything. 
Um, but we got to play some tournaments and uh, the opportunity was there to play some good golf. Uh, we had a lot of golf course access around town and it always had good weather. So I think all those things were good. And um, when you see the guys you play with and play against have success, that's, that's good for you too. Um, I remember my senior year, I went over and watched the final round of tour school. Uh, it was at Greenleaf and I saw a handful of guys that I all knew, I knew from college, um, and from other places and they got their cards and I saw their excitement and I saw the pressure that they were under playing the qualifying tournament. Um, but I, you know, right then it was, might've been the first time it dawned on me, like, okay, I can actually do this. I can get through tour school and I can be on tour. And uh, I'd already played in the U.S. Open, so you'd think I'd, that would have been the first sign, you know, just to get there and see those guys. You're talking 1985 at Greenleaf, correct? Yes. I was caddying for Jeff McMillan, my buddy. He was playing in the final stage of the tour school that year, and I remember being at that tournament helping him out. And um, so, and interestingly enough, my best friend, and I think I told you this earlier, Jeff, played in two U.S. Opens, and both U.S. Opens, you won. So I, I know Jeff needs to play in more U.S. Opens. He needs to play some senior Opens. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? That would yeah. sure help you out a lot, wouldn't it? Yeah, forget those regular Opens. Well, tell me the story you told me about a, a tournament you committed to early in the year, both those years in 93 and 98. Too. Dan Utley, who uh, some people may know, he played at the University of Missouri. He's teaching golf now in Arizona. Um, he asked me to come play in his charity event in Columbia. Um, and the only two years I accepted were 93 and 98 and I accepted early in the year. So it wasn't after the U S Open; it was before the U S open. And he certainly took claim that that was the reason why I won. So either Stan Utley or Jeff McMillan can kind of lay claim to why you won two U S opens. Yeah. Well, I, I think you won them because you learned how to play golf under tough conditions, but I do want to say this before we, um, before we finish, I want I want some wisdom out of you. I want one bit, one tidbit of wisdom you think would help a 14, 15, 16-year-old kid who wants to play college golf, who wants to play the PGA Tour. What, what do you think the most valuable thing is you could tell him that would really, something you couldn't keep from telling him he'd have to know? Well, there's, there's two things I usually try to pass on. You know, whatever it is you want to accomplish, that's what you focus on. You want to be a great driver of the ball, learn how to drive the ball. You want to be a great short game guy, learn how to chip. You want to be a great putter, learn how to putt. You want to be the greatest player of all time. I mean, we know Tiger would set sights on Jack Nicklaus when he was five years old. Um, and that's probably all he thought about. That, that's the kind of focus it takes. Don't think about the stuff you don't want to do. I know I just said don't, but, <laughs> um, you know, you want to focus on what you want to happen. Don't focus on the stuff you don't want to happen. That'll You'll never get anywhere. You, the guy that talks about what a great ball striker is and he can't putt, he, he probably will continue to miss putts as long as he talks like that. So that's the first. Only focus on what you want to happen. Right. And the second is adversity is coming your way. It's different for everybody. How you handle it will make a difference. That's how you build your character. So when when you have adversity, how do you respond to it? And you won't respond to it great every time, but if you can remember that adversity is coming and how I handle it, it's going to help build character and down the road, it's going to pay off for me. Those two things. Well, those are, those, that's great advice to give kids. And, you know, um, I've always respected you as a U.S. Open champion, but one of the things that really, really 
means a lot to me is your faith. And so I know it's played a big part in your career and definitely in the ups and downs both. I mean, I think it's been a, a big part of it. What, how would you say faith has shaped, you know, kind of how you've played this professional golf career? Well, when, when things get seem to be too important, um, it's easy to remember that it's not that important. And it, it makes the lows not as low and the highs are still fun, but you know, they're also, they're going to, they're going to go away. So when it won the second U S open, I really enjoyed it, but I also know that victory is fleeting, but I still got to enjoy the U S open. I did every interview. I, I just, and I embraced all of it and loved every second of it. Um, the very next week we were in Chicago and I asked for a late tea time on Wednesday. Cause I didn't even go to the golf course till then. Tiger was just finishing up his pro-am round to the left on nine green. And he's got 5,000 people around him for the pro-am and they're going to announce me on the tee as the current newest U S open champion. There's like 10 people there, <laughs> but I, I, I wasn't devastated. I just sort of laughed like, yeah, I know who the king of the tour is. He's right over there. <laughs> I won last week. And, well, uh, but, so that would tell me that your faith has given you great perspective. So yeah. you, you, you're never as low as you think you are and, and you're not as great as you think you are either. <laughs> And winning tournaments usually humbles me. Um, in those moments, I just can't even believe that would happen, that all of the things that have to happen, happen. Um, you know, it's always amazing to me that, you know, yeah, that's all I really work for. I just constantly working, trying to get better at every part of my game so that when I get in the tournament, I play well. And then when it actually comes together, I'm blown away that it happened. Yeah, it's what you were working for. Yeah, I shouldn't be surprised, should I? Shouldn't be surprised, no, but... I want to thank you for coming on today. And I want to say this. I hope that you win this year. And I still think you can. Why wouldn't you, huh? Yeah, I, I think the same thing. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on today. I know the message was good to kids who are struggling, trying to find a place to play in college. And I think it's good for them to know that the smaller school, a D2 or an NAI or even a junior college could be a great option. And thank you for giving that message. And things don't have to go perfect either. Um, they, they didn't start out well for me, and it took a while, but it came around. Yeah, and you're still playing. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Best of luck, and we'll, we'll look forward to watching you. All right. Talk to you again, Coach.